Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Martin Sturge talks about Lady Anna Miller of Bath Easton. Mr. Sturge is deeply involved with the Bath Royal Literary and Scientific Institution and sponsored the rebinding of a rare volume of Lady Miller's poetical assemblies held in the institution's historic library. <clears throat> Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Now, who, before they got here or saw the advert, had heard of Lady Miller? Hands up. Right. Good. Well, that's four dangerous questions I can expect. <laughs> Lady Miller turned people on and she turned people off. She had enthusiasts and castigators. The former, a whole retinue of poets a few poseurs, and the odd fawning sycophant, whom she coldly dismissed. The latter, mostly snobs, blue stockings, will come to them, and a few rather jolly lampoonists, and undoubtedly the jealous, probably because they never got invitations. She was suddenly all the rage, as suddenly she disappeared. In the absence of any known portrait... Her only known image is on her memorial plaque in Bath Abbey, just to the left of the altar, from which I made a poor photograph and, in turn, a very modest sketch. Here we see her, perhaps at her prime in the early 1770s. Her husband must have had a portrait from which the sculptor worked. Apparently a pleasant, unpretentious face, plumpish, perhaps, after her mother. We may perhaps imagine her in the finery of her times, ladies dress beautifully. What of her nature? There are few clues. Her poetry is romantic and perhaps a little stilted, throwing a veil upon her real self. Apart from her last letters at a time of poor health, perhaps the real Anna Miller is best heard in the letters written to her mother from France and Italy, 62 of them altogether, while on a grand tour in 1770-71. A few Colourful quotations illustrate her lively soul. Of priestly hypocrisy, she observes a little sharply. But how different must be the country where liberty, blended with every patriotic and social virtue, springs up spontaneously in every bosom, to that where religion serves only as a mask to hide the hypocrisy of the wily priest, who, instead of inculcating the laws of morality and encouraging industry, whenever it serves his interests, drags forth his saintly puppet show, whenever it serves his interests, um, and unfurls the banners of his deceits. These were um, born standards born in processions. To his deluded flock, who beating their breasts, their eyes turned up in ecstatic stupidity, while their ears are filled with the swelling yell of these holy men, fancy that they believe that the heavens, propitious to their distortions, will bestow upon them immediate rain or sunshine, according to their wish. So she wrote beautifully. During her tour, she saw many works of art, particularly Van Dyck's portrait of the three children of Charles I. Admiral, she wrote, both as to the colouring, drapery and correctness of the drawing, all the graces that belong to children added to the most charming uh, countenances, which express at the same time 
dignity without pride, and softness without languor. We discover great sensitivity in her art appreciation, more acute still on a painting by Guercino, which I couldn't find. Proof of the expression a human figure is capable of discovering, revealing she means, without the aid of the countenance. For the face of the prodigal son is not seen. He is represented in a kneeling posture. His back is turned to the spectator, but every feeling of his mind is shown in the muscles of his back, legs, and the soles of his feet. Shame, regret, and repentance are more strongly expressed than they could have been in his face. On their journey, they visited many hostelries, and Anna assiduously noted the recipes and sharply some of the shortcomings. For instance, we regaled ourselves on the shoulder of a ram, which smelt as strong as if it had been the shoulder of a fox. They also enjoyed some picnics, irrigated with Italian generosity. At one, she found the wine very pleasant. She was less kind about the goatskin gourd it came from. The hair is off, but the skin looks black and greasy. Where the feet and the head grew, it is sewed up. The whole looks like some strange swollen monster. The Ganymede or cupbearer, who acts as butler, tucks up his dis- this dismembered carcass like a pair of Scotch bagpipes under his arm, presents its posteriors to the guests, and plucks out a peg. The wine flows out from a tap nature never intended for that purpose when she created goats. Had she seen this vessel before she tasted of its contents, she said, I doubt if I could have prevailed upon myself to have touched it. She took a particular delight in Italian manners. I had heard the Italians were ceremonious. I have not yet perceived perceived this defect. The perfection of good breeding appears to me to consist in putting everybody at their ease. This is the real Anna. Indeed, she appreciated her husband's kindness to porters on the uncomfortable journeys they often had to make. Of her husband, on one of the long, long walks they were tried with, he walked, I'm sure, three parts of the road. You know how humane he is, and the being carried by his own species is no part of his system. Full of incident and mortal and mordant comment on the rudimentary accommodation in lodgings on their journey, her fellow Barthonian Thomas Smollett, uh, 20 years her senior, had written more cuttingly still. Anna's letters, taken together, show the real private Anna Miller, her friends must have known, and seem to reveal a finely articulate woman of good education, broad cultural and humanitarian awareness, artistic sensitivity, humour, and diffidence. She was not always thus described, as we shall see. So, who is this intriguing person? Born Anna Riggs in 1741 to one Edward Riggs, appointed that same year a Commissioner of Customs in London, he being the son of Edward Riggs of Riggsdale in County Court, himself a Commissioner of Inland Revenue, and for many years member of the Irish House of Commons and a privy councillor in Ireland, 
Anna was orphaned at the age of seven by the death of her father and thereby became sole heiress to her grandfather's considerable fortune. In the care of her mother, a doughty woman of ancient Shropshire extraction, Little more is known about her until her marriage here in Bath in August 1765 to one Captain John Miller. Her husband came from Ballycasey in County Clare, but little is known of his early years save his schooling at Dalston College, then Eton, and his admission as a fellow commoner to the Middle Temple of the Bar in August 1757. At this time, this was also something of a university for the sons of country gentry, some half of whose members gave Irish addresses, providing a general grounding in law and government. After army service during the Seven Years' War, during which he is rather improbably recorded as matriculating at Cambridge, he inherited his family estates. That's he, the husband's estates. On the death of his brother, and found them to be at an Irish low ebb, uh, to quote his biographer, Mrs. Hasselgrave, in the 1920s, turned and his thoughts turned, uh, because of his paucity, to matrimony. His marriage to Anna seems to have been harmonious throughout, with many shared interests, a love story indeed. Captain and Mrs. Miller, or possibly her mother, Mrs. Riggs, having acquired land at Bath Easton, they commissioned the building of a house, quote, a very diminutive principality of with large pretensions, commented the third son of Prime Minister Robert Walpole, namely the unlovable Horace Walpole, a frequently ferocious arbiter, indeed something of a prima donna in matters of taste and social comment, making of denigration an art form, as was sometimes the custom. Somehow their building arrangements were delayed, just possibly by cost, so they went to France, and as they say, her mother came too. After the birth of her son, John Augustus, that was in Paris, they left both children with the garrulous Mrs. Riggs and proceeded to Italy, where her letter-writing talent was employed to good effect. Their grand tour had been prepared with great care and was organised with the help of some useful introductions, particularly in Turin, where they stayed at an apartment belonging to the Comte de Choiseul, the French ambassador to the King of Sardinia's court in that town. Together with coach and horses, which they declined, and an introduction to the Comte d'Aguilar, the Spanish ambassador, whose king had instructed that his parties should surpass all others in quantity and quality, no expense spared. For all their jollity, their main interest was art. And she had with her all the standard guidebooks at that time, including those of Keisler, Lalande, and the Abbé Richard, with whose artistic appreciations she often took spiny issue. An example is a quotation from Lalande, to which she objected, which I shall give in English. Among the paintings which should most excite the curiosity of Connoisseur, there is a priest taking confession from a lady and a penitent waiting in his turn. They say it, be, it is by L'Espagnole. Count Cavallo, who was showing her round, commented that Monsieur de Lalande had actually only spent a short time in Turin and not much with the pictures and was happy to praise anything which an Italian found imperfect. Then adding, il faut laisser causer et jaser les messieurs François. That's 
French at that time, one must let these French gentlemen chatter and babble. Her infinities were, well, her grammar was dreadful, but her understanding was good. Her imperfect spelling of French was, in fact, horribly exaggerated by Walpole, with his unkind description of Anna as a poor Arcadian patroness who does not spell right one word of French or Italian right through her three volumes. Though we must remember that the French themselves only adopted the notion of correct spelling, orthographe or orthography, in 1901. In fact, Anna's fluency with French seeped charmingly into her English. Assist for attend, gravings like gravure instead of engravings, advertisement from avertissement, which actually means a warning. Maybe she had a French governess in her childhood. Certainly she encountered sharp anti-French sentiment in Italy and may have found her sympathies divided, but we need to remember that 48 French battalions under the Comte de Belle-Isle had just been routed by 13 Piedmontese belonging to, the, belonging to the King of Sardinia. Her letters from Italy, written in 1770 and 71, and describing the manners, customs, antiquities, paintings, etc., of that country, provide strong clues as to her later activities in Bath Eastern. In letter 44, the 1st of May, 1771, we learn of their visit to the Palazzo Corsini, formerly the residence of Queen Christina of Sweden, until her, until her death in 1689. Having abdicated her Swedish crown in 1654, in favour of her cousin, Carl Gustav II, and helped herself to many of the treasures which he himself had plundered from the Holy Roman Emperor. Queen Christina had converted to Catholicism and settled in Rome, where she became a major patron of music and the opera, Scarlatti and Corelli being amongst her protégé, and in 1656 formed a literary a literary circle which became known as the Accademia Reale di Cristina di Svezia, Royal Academy of Cristina of Sweden. After her death, an academy uh, in her honour was founded in 1690, known by various names, including the Accademia dell'Arcadia, Academy of the Shepherds, or Arcadian Academy. Its 14 founding members elected a president, a writer and historian of poetry, one Giovanni Mario Crescimbeni, Greco-Roman bucolic poetry was their inspiration and led them to the fields of truth and a sense of measure and beauty in subjects of pastoral simplicity, hence the title Arcadia. Early tensions led to a schism, but Crescimbeni, influenced by Petrarch, stuck to his guns and the Arcadian Academy was to spread throughout Italy. We know that the Millers encountered a similar Quirini Academy, possibly a splinter group, almost certainly in fact. And indeed, the Crescimbeni's uh, Academy survived well into the 20th century. At its foundation, the Academia had taken for its symbol the pipes of Pan, set in a so-called laurel wreath. For the record, Laurus Nobilis translates into English bay, what we call laurel is Prunus lauroceracus, related to the plum. When picked, it quickly goes limp and flabby, quite unsuitable for wreaths or crowns. So laurel wreaths aren't laurel. 
<clears throat> Here we see the title page of a pamphlet or program of I Giochi Olimpici, as in French, Les Jeux Olympiques or Olympic Games, for 1721, with its pipes of pan and wreath of bay. The idea was to revive the ancient Olympic Games, but this time testing mental skills rather than physical ones. The Academia was the first of any Italian academy to admit female members. Its purpose was the reform of Italian literature, and the shepherds, and indeed the pastorelli, or shepherdesses, were encouraged to reject Baroque conceits in favour of simple form and clear language, though courtly habits and references did sometimes compromise their labours. For each of five literary categories, the winners were rewarded with crowns of bay or myrtle, reminiscent of military awards in ancient Rome. It may just be fanciful coincidence, but Crescimbeni's classical reenactments neatly coincided with events at the emperor's court in China, where artistically talented Jesuit priests had become very influential. Emperor Ingen, not of Chinese but of Manchu descent, yet a master of Chinese calligraphy, which is quite foreign to Manchu culture, sought to reinforce his credentials by reenacting some poetic, some poetry competitions going back to AD 53. This was a scroll which we saw recently in London. Here we see the emperor playing the quin or chin, the zither, as his gentlemen, buoyed up by glasses of rice wine, floated down streams by damsels of the court, tried their poetic skills. This, there may or may not be a connection to the European classical revival. I suspect there is. During their travels, the Millers also acquired some nice pictures and objets de vertu, including an antique Etruscan marble urn. This urn, or vase, had the previous year, <coughs> uh, 1769 that would be, been unearthed near Rome, at Frascati, once the home of Marcus Tullius Cicero. Who could tell? Might it have been his? Might it have held his ashes? Anyway, it later became known as Tully's Vase, and was to hold pride of place in the bay window in Bath Eastern Villa. The vase has gone, but the window remains unchanged. So, we have literary competitions and a vase. A third element in Anna Miller's continental discoveries came from France. It was a literary amusement called Bourrime, or Rhymed Ends. Its ancestry has been traced right back to Andalusian verse, brought to France by William VIII of Aquitaine when the Muslim caliphs were chased out of Spain. His son, William IX, 1071 to 1127, developed a mastery of the poetic style known as Zajar. Uh, this is an Arabic onomatopoeia for the whisper of the wind in the trees, a style which idealized women and chaste and virtuous love, though this rambustuous nobleman often slipped into bordiness. Here we are 270 years before Geoffrey Chaucer, at the very birth of a great cultural tradition. The subject needs a week, unfortunately, 
We have only time for a few lines. I'll give a rough, a rough translation. <clears throat> you can see the Occitan on the left and the uh, English on the right. With a new song shall I please before it rain or blow or freeze. With taunting may my lady tease to try and testify be true. Her doubtings will I calm and ease and happily my troth renew. I yield to her, my all submit, and by her side she'll see I fit. Nor think by drink my heart is lit when I so love my goodly dame. Without her would I lose my wit. Such hungry love would leave me lame. Four centuries later, the troubadour's courtly plaint was still to be found in the more humorous jesting works of Clément Marot. A bad boy at court, having potentially wangled his way around a bishop and out of prison for eating bacon at Lent, Marot became an expert in getting into scrapes and juggling his way out with poetic subtlety and invention. <clears throat> Contrepé and calembour, spoonerism and pun. In this nonsense poem from the early 1500s, he desperately examines his difficulties in rhyming rhyme and rhythmicating rhythm, as we might say, and implores the king for a job. You'll see the French on the left. That's a typical uh, southern French of the time. In frenzied labor, make I, rounds, make I rounds to rhyme, and careful rhythm bring thereto in time. But are we wasted? This is him to the king. Such a rhythmic pair, for rhythm is quite plentiful elsewhere. Compared to yours, my rhyming skills are rough. Of chattels have you, and of rhythm enough. But me, for all my rhymes I long rehearse, they all fall flat, as does my thinning purse. One day, a rhymester's question made me start. Tell me, Maru, is our rhyme an art? Venius, you who hear this muse, Tis so, say I, disproving other views. Observe, say I, beyond that garden fence where rhyming lives, we can in either sense this art enjoy. Should our rhymes bring a tear, then others' rhymings can still please our ear. The Queen thought well of him, and his plea brought him into royal service for many years. And so we come to an absent-minded buffoon, also near Bordeaux, one Monsieur Dulot, who in 1648 was telling some friends that he had been robbed of some valuable papers, indeed 300 sonnets. To their unbelieving taunts, he explained something like this. You see, poetry can be quite difficult. Indeed, one of the problems you may have encountered is um, getting them to rhyme. They nodded forgivingly to each other. So I thought, he continued, um, if I did the rhymes first, then I'd only have to complete the lines. His idiocy left them limp. When one of them said, actually, that's not a bad idea, we could make a game out of that. And so they did. To start with, rhyme ends uh, were taken from known work, such as those selected by the Duchess of Maine in 1710 for the poet Etienne Malamance. Somehow, Anna Miller encountered this game in her travels through France, 
where it had become an established social pastime. By 1771, they were back in Paris uh, to collect uh, their children, and Mrs. Riggs, whom Madame Dudefant, a Paris socialite, described in a letter to Walpole as a singularly irksome jabberer. Soon the Millers were back in Bath Easton, and her mother came too, as the song has it. Here we see from the West her property as it is today. In the fine bay window, Tully's vase, set upon a fine cylindrical place, was to take pride of place, plinth, was to take pride of place, the focus of her celebrated enterprise. She writes of Bath Easton Villa. On the fair summit of a verdant lawn, where Phoebus silvers with his earliest dawn, there a bower enclosed in lofty shade, save where it overlooks the fertile glade. What though the front no stately columns boast of costly marble brought from Africa's coast, nor swelling portico with Grecian pride and sculptured pomp advance its polished side, yet blushing roses wove with eglantine in sportive garlands round the portal twine. There sacred laurels spread their branches round, there aged rocks with hoary moss are crowned. There the clear fountains with the sunbeams play, invite repose and mitigate the day, and so on. There are indeed in that garden still springs uh, falling down over mossy rocks. Might we give Walpole just one chance, last chance to be nice, in a letter to Lady Aylesbury on Mrs. Riggs, we read an old rough humorist who passed for a wit, her daughter, who passed for nothing, married to Captain Miller, uh, full of good-natured officiousness. They caught a little of what was then called taste, built and planted and begot children, till the whole caravan were forced to go abroad to retrieve. Alas, Mrs. Miller is returned a beauty, a genius, a sappho, a tenth muse. Walpole's finely polished nastiness remains undimmed. <clears throat> so, life got underway at Bath Eastern Villa. Sometimes restyled Parnassus and Anna Miller started her weekly Friday receptions, bringing together the three elements found on her travels, the poetry, the vase, and the prizes. <clears throat> at each meeting, her guests were given a list of rhyming line-ends, or bourrimés, to be solved or completed by the next occasion. For those feeling daunted by the bourrimé, subjects or themes were suggested. Guests folded their submissions unsigned and placed them in the urn or vase, whence they were withdrawn by a young lady and handed to some gentleman to be read out. After all had been read, a collation was served, often attracting the highest praise, reminding us perhaps of the receptions in Turin, while the works were discussed and the winners decided. The winning poets, poets were then invited personally to read out their works and rewarded, according to their merits, with wreaths or sprigs of bay or myrtle. It soon transpired that Fridays conflicted with the balls in baths, so Mrs. Miller's matinees were arranged to Thursday evenings. And those who won the wreaths were then, or the sprigs were then expected to wear them at the balls the next evening. Chic members of Bath Society, with some notable exceptions, were at first uneasy with this presumptuous initiative. In a community not widely noted for their intellectual enterprise, 
Enthusiasm was soon ignited by the discovery of unsuspected talents. The season ran from mid-December to May, and they were probably into their stride by early 1774, soon becoming a regular feature of Bath life. As these events proceeded, a better work, um, the better work was assembled and published for sale, the proceeds going to the pauper scheme, which provided medical help to the poor who didn't actually qualify for hospital treatment, and which was the early forerunner to the RUH, the Royal United Hospital. It is from the four volumes of Poetical Amusement at a Villa near Bath, published in 1775, 6 and 7, and 1781, that our knowledge of the assemblies mostly comes. In volume one, uh, proceedings kicked off with the Rymens, like Confess, Express, Detest, Molest, Light, Might. Submissions including a nice, included a nice enigma by Mrs. Miller on a shoe. Enigmas were a frequent sub-theme, as were acrostics. An old poetry game since Roman times, even double acrostics. That does get difficult. Soon, a very fruitful test was set. Time, rhyme, bays, lays, pleasure, leisure. The first listed submission by a thinly disguised Mr. Pitt of political renown was a pleasant receipt or recipe actually for uh, composing Bourimé. Also two more enigmas, a letter and gold. The second again by Mrs. Miller. Pitt's recipe is rather good. Take a jest uh, Take of jest and of humour an ounce at a time, mix the flowers of fancy and tinctures of rhyme to some smart repartee at the essence of bays with the sugar of sense just to sweeten your lays. Then quick lively ideas throw in at your pleasure of the spirit of wit, of wit add some drops at your leisure. Then after two submissions on spring, bring, etc., Palmerston and Fielding, uh, we pass to a double bourrime on breeze, trees, uh, then on um, to another by Captain Miller in praise of Laura, Anna, of course. Such fawning accolades were strongly discouraged by Anna, particularly in a small coterie of cloying <coughs> sycophants, though without much success, they just carried on. Bourrime were to catch on widely in England. In 1820, Cassandra Austin, Jane's mother, and her cousin George Knight were to indulge their inventiveness in a to-and-fro exchange on verse, sorrow, rehearse, purse, tomorrow. And in 1848, uh, there was quite a competition between Dante, Dante Gabriel Rossetti and his brother William Michael, exercises in which Christina Rossetti also participated Speed competitions became fashionable, the challenge being set and regularly uh, solved by one celebrity in eight minutes. This manner is celebrated to this day on websites as far apart as America and Russia. <clears throat> we know that Bourrime already featured with the charades and enigmas amongst the amusements of the court of Catherine the Great, we see on the left, um, in Russia. In 1787, as she prepared for yet another Russian-Turkish war, they might, of course, have been introduced by the Comte de Ségur, the French ambassador. Uh, we know, too, that Alexander's Pushkin's uncle, 
uh, Vasily was mentioned in Tolstoy's War and Peace, published in the 1860s, used, uh, that the uncle used to compose Bourimé. They may also have descended from Catherine's court, of course. Some years ago, I found a Russian website holding, hosting Bourimé, which I was unable to translate, but a Russian lady friend they were said they were offensively lavatorial and denied me a translation. Today, the Russian poetic community is attuned to English literature and seems to play Bourimé with sonnets, both the Italian and Shakespearean or English form. This will test you. Here we see some contemporary, contemporary uh, Russian games. First, to rhyme on Bourimé, as we pronounce it, that's top left. The ball and chain seem to warn the reader of challenge. Uh, what is written there is Bourimé kak avant-gardista. It's a bit nonsensical. What a dream of the avant-garde. Sarcastic, perhaps. Next, we come to Zachem Yaigrayu Vsyanetnik. Sanyetnik comes from sonnet, a little sonnet. Why would I play with a little sonnet? And then, at the bottom, the feathers rowing a boat along, we come to Arisuyum. Sorry, we come to Master Class Sanyetnika, a sonnet master class, which I'll admit, because it offered Italian style, which wasn't actually Italian style. Then we have, in the middle, a very pleasant bourrime uh, about censorship of a curvaceous, and I imagine excessively sexy, drawing, from what I can understand of it. It has top right, censuri, and then... Um, Contore figuri, which I'm sure you can work out. Um, and finally, uh, the bottom drawing on the right. Risuim um, Let us draw a jabberwocky. Nobody knows what the word bormorchuni derives from, but it was followed with a full translation of a jabberwocky. That must have been a challenge. However, we drift from Bourimé, as indeed did the Bath Eastern Assemblies, with a newfound preference for themes or subjects. Some excellent submissions were made on the theme of nature compared with art, such as this one by one master Schaumberg, age 16, uh, who continued submitting for some time right through his studies at Oxford. I find quite excellent verses one 14 and 15. Nature and art, if we compare the differences we see, nature is ever young and fair, art only in degree. 14. Nature is unconfined and bold. Graceful are her ways, but art by wanton whim controlled, charms not her own displays. Know this great truth, say what you will, Nature, her work, completes. But art is nature's shadow still, and as a shadow, fleets. Then, with volume two, came a sharp announcement. Bourimé banished, after all that trouble. Those aliens to British genius and British liberty held out in the infancy of our institution to accommodate the indolent and to encourage the different. 
for diffident, are at present under a general prohibition. Unbothered by her critics, exemplified in this caricature by Dali, Anna then restates her purposes to discourage politics, pretentiousness, coarseness, to encourage tasteful amusement, seen as an antidote to that available in rowdy quarters of Bath. In an engaging follow-on, follow-on from the theme of nature and art, we find six submissions on the difference between humour and wit. In a pleasant exchange between Aminta and Florio, references back to Shakespeare's time, humour is said to bring a laugh, wit rather a smile, humour to move just the face, but wit the mind. Other themes followed. Charity, hope, harmony, happiness, beauty, town and country. As the assemblies progressed, so there were fewer and longer poems, including two quite excellent by the famous Christopher Anstey. Anstey was a classical scholar and a great wit who memorably fluffed his MA by addressing addressing his Cambridge elite. Doctores sine doctrina. I'll do it in English. Doctors without doctrine. Masters of art without art. Bachelors sporting crutches rather than crowns. Cambridge was not amused. Anstey was, of course, the author of the New Bath Guide, which a lot of you must know, and the election ball, which describes so sharply the state of Bath society at that time. Anstey wrote a prize-winning poem for one of Anna's assemblies, and when invited to give it the customary second reading, he substituted a second opposite tone, whereas the first imagined ladies bemoaning the passing of their youth The second recommended finding a new husband uh, younger by 22 years. It was a satire on a scandal of the time, but must have caused overt offence and some covert mirth. Also were featured two by David Garrick and several by Anna Seward of Litchfield. Anna Miller's junior by one year and one of her early protégés. At Garrick's death, a matinee was organised at Bath Easton in his memory, and Anna Seward was persuaded to write an elegy (coughs) to this fine man of theatre, indeed a fine elegy, of which a short excerpt illustrates the admiration in which he was held. With Shakespeare's spirit, she said, he trod through the inventive maze, through the deep pathos of his melting themes and the light magic of his playful dreams, caught all the genuine humour glowing there, wit's vivid flash, cunning's sober leer, the wildest dress that fires the kindling brain when feeble madness braves the stormy plain, or when pale youth in the midnight shade pursues the, steely, the steel-clad phantom through the glade, or starting from the couch with dire affright when the crowned murderer stares upon the sight in all the horrors of the guilty soul, dark as the night that wraps the frozen pole. Anna Seward's fine tribute. Later, the same year that this ode was published, it was Anna Miller's epitaph that she would write. 
There was a five-year gap between the publication of volumes three and four. The assemblies were evolving all the time, but we cannot ignore the possibility that fading health played its part. We know a little of Anna's condition from letters exchanged with the architect Sir John Soane, he who later designed the Bank of England and the dining rooms at 10 and 11 Downing Street, but he was then 27. In July of 1780, Anna reported to him her weak state of health, near near fainting away, and later in October that she was confined to bed by the epidemical sickness, whatever that may have been. Sir John Soane had taken with him at least the first two volumes of her letters from Italy, which were published in 1776. That was a year before his Royal Academy travelling scholarship to Italy, and read her suggestion that Italian monuments might provide ideas for the embellishment of English gardens. Thus inspired, he stopped to admire the so-called Temple of Clitumnus. One of several poets um, inspired by this building was Byron, who wrote languorously of living crystal haunt of river nymph, grassy banks and milk-white steer. Surely a stream unprofaned by slaughters, a mirror and bath for beauty's youngest daughters and the like. Romantic lines which will have to wait for another occasion, but which echo echoed to the inspiration of several artists, including the great Piranesi, admired by Anna in her letters. The uh, drawing bottom left is by Piranesi of this temple of Clitumnus. Soane, too, was to sketch Clitumnus and upon it base a suggested temple for her garden. That's the bottom drawing. It was not to be. One of Anna Miller's many guests at Bath Easton was Fanny Burney, whose first novel, Evelina, fascinated the Miller's little daughter, who charmingly asked Miss Burney all about Evelina's latest news. She believed it so much. In the novel, Evelina visits Hotwells near Bristol, a most delightful spot. The prospect is beautiful, the air pure, the weather very favourable to invalids. The early Traveller Celia Fiennes, writing about 1700, had described the waters of Hot Wells as being as warm as new milk and much of that sweetness. And from about that time, invalids, thriving on ignorance, were attracted there. In 1754, John Wesley drank from the old spring and a new one, suffering from galloping consumption. And to his great surprise, having even written his own epitaph, was one of the lucky ones to survive. Consumption led its sufferers to fortitude and resignation, as we know from a book of poetical effusions by a young lady in our BRLSI archives, such as 12 lines written in her Bible from Clifton, possibly in or near the sanatorium at Hotwells, in about 1818, which I've selected just four lines. What a rich banquet have I here, such a sweet Feast that drives out fear of sin, of hell, of death, and cheers my fleeting breath. Consumption, or TB, was for long to remain a hovering dark cloud. Today come others. In 1781, a fifth volume of the poetical amusements was in preparation, when an anonymous wag was said to have placed a poem of licentious satire in the vase, 
so offensive to the Millers that uh, Tully's vase was closed and the meetings discontinued? Or was it rather her health? On the 24th of June at Hotwell's, Lady Anna Miller died. This impressive memorial was erected by Sir John to the left of the altar in Bath Abbey, beneath the plinth bearing a facsimile of the vase and Anna's portrait medallion. Appears the epitaph by Anna Seward. It it concludes with this verse addressed to a gentle stranger who may pass by. Ah, truth and genius, love and pity thine, with liberal charity and faith sincere, then rest thy wandering step beneath this shrine and greet a wandering spirit hovering near. Sir John might perhaps have added some words from their beloved Tully, Marcus Tullius Cicero. Be sure that it is not you that is mortal, but only your body. The spirit is the true self. It was indeed Anna Miller's admirable spirit that we remember. That determination to challenge, to encourage enterprise against a backcloth of timid indolence. Right from scratch, she made a forum for positive aesthetic enterprise, at once an entertainment, her avowed purpose, and a foil to the frivolous and dissolute pastimes, gambling, bawdiness and worse, so readily found. Indeed, she encouraged and demonstrated female enterprise, a compliment also to Creshimbeni and his academia. At times, no less than 40 carriages were to be seen in her lane. The blue stockings were, of course, dismissive in her regard, as were others in theirs. A blue stocking, it was alleged, is the most odious character in society. Nature, sense and hilarity fly at her approach. Affectation, absurdity and peevishness follow in her train. She sinks wherever she is placed like the yolk of an egg to the bottom and carries the filth and the lees with her. Fun for the sharp of tongue, perhaps, but such nastiness would have been far from Anna Miller's register. Let us rather remember an address to the Bath Royal Literary and Scientific Institution on the 26th of May, 1858, by one Reverend Francis Kilvert, warmly praising what was known of Lady Miller's assemblies some 80 years earlier, commenting that much denigration was merely disparagement of what one had not been permitted to enjoy. Invitations were not always easy to come by. And pleading that our institution might re-inaugurate such activities. As it happens today, our three poetry groups are led by three energetic ladies. Thank you.